You're listening to the EFC Podcast. Dion Oxford served as mission strategist for the Salvation Army's homeless shelters in Toronto for years. He has journeyed alongside people experiencing homelessness as part of his calling, and it has been a deep part of his own spiritual formation. Dion was the force behind a social enterprise involving laundry and a bunch of his friends, which created employment that changed some lives and inspired similar endeavors across Canada. He just contributed a chapter in the new book, Beyond Shelters, Solutions to Homelessness in Canada from the Frontlines. Dion spoke with us from his heart, which we always appreciate. My name is Karen Stiller. Enjoy. Dion, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, I'd like to ask you first, when we talk about the homeless in Canada, who are we talking about? Can we make some general statements? Well, no, that's that's the that's a very good question, because uh, most people, when you think about the word homeless, it's it's it's, you know, a particular kind of person. But, you know, with the job market the way it is today and with with, uh, with the difficulty and just maintaining benefits and all that stuff, it could be any anybody uh, that that loses work or. Uh, just ends up not being able to pay the bills or whatever. So our shelters are full of men and women from all kinds of places in the world. So if I, uh, you're in Toronto and you're a mission strategist for the Salvation Army's five homeless shelters in Toronto. So if I was to walk in uh, to a shelter today, what what would I see? What would it look like? What would it feel like? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, well, it would feel full first off. Like uh, our streets are so full of people now with no home. It's unbelievable. It's there's a there's been about eight that there's about eight thousand beds in Toronto altogether, including uh, not just shelters but uh, hospitals and jails. People that people that have no home. So on any given night in Toronto, there's there's at least eight thousand people. Uh, that, that that are homeless. So if you walk into a shelter, it could be, but our shelters are either all men or all women. We don't have any mixed shelters as of now. So you could you could run into a bunch of men who uh, again are trying to work, trying to save up enough money to try and find uh, a place to live, or it could be could be someone who is struggling with an addiction or a mental health issue. Everybody's all sort of hodgepodge, all mixed all together. And with women and men separate, how what does that do to families? I assume there are other shelters that take families. Or? Yes, yes, there are. There are family. We do run a uh, sort of abused women and children shelter in Brampton, but that's not part of our downtown uh, shelters. So yeah, there are there are family family run shelters for for that purpose as well. Yes, and the, and the fastest growing number of people who are homeless are actually kids. So, so we do need to make sure they're with their their at least one of their parents. You know, Dion, I, I was just thinking part of, as part of my work as a writer for Faith Today, I've traveled a bit and I've been to some refugee camps in Africa. And one of the things I very quickly learned that, and it it actually surprised me that I had this so wrong because I think I'm a you know sort of open minded smart person, <laughs> but I. I realized that, oh, these people who are refugees are actually just like me. 
they are families, they were professionals, you know, here's the mayor, here's a nurse, here's a lawyer, here's a preacher, they, and because of these circumstances out of their control, they were forced to live in a refugee camp. So that was a huge, huge lesson for me. And I'm wondering, uh, is that the same kind of story we see played out in Canada's homeless population? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very, it's, a, it's an important thing to learn when hanging out with folks on the streets. I, I started working with folks on the streets 28 years ago now. And I came as a small town sort of conservative evangelical boy to save people. I was going to be the the, the, the the bright light for people. And when I got on the streets, I learned that I was the one that was being saved. I'm the one that's being changed. I'm the one that I thought I was going to bring Jesus with me into dark alleys and all that stuff. But I, when I got there, I recognized that Jesus was already there and I got to meet him there. So, you know, people people are people. And so that's why you won't even hear me say a homeless person. You'll, you'll hopefully hear me say always a person experiencing homelessness so that the emphasis is on the personhood first. Because homelessness is not the curriculum vitae of people that we meet. It's just one of many, many characteristics of people that, that end up homeless. Yeah. Okay. I really like that. So a person experiencing homelessness, mm -hmm. that's what we should be saying. Well, um, that's you, what I say. I mean, yeah. yeah, no, I like it. I think, I think you're right. That makes perfect sense. Um, and th this idea of how you entered this work, your mindset, I think that story has played out <laughs> so many times too. You hear so many people um, who of good faith and good intention and good hearted people who learn that lesson. I'd love for you to unpack that a bit more, Dion, and tell us more about your journey and how this has impacted your faith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I had a very black and white faith uh, when I was growing up and I suppose that's not unusual for most people, but then at the age of 20, when I was the, the cook at this uh, drop-in center for the Salvation Army, and I was feeding about 120 men, mostly men every day, coming in to this drop-in, which, by the way, I should never be cooking for anybody, but I was cooking uh, <laughs> what I would call Newfie specials, uh, uh, macaroni and cheese and thick bologna sandwiches. And so I love bologna. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to the food bank once a week and got logs of bologna for people and cut them up and made sandwiches. So that was my, that was my specialty. And uh, I, I uh, started cooking and it was there again that I thought, you know, I'm going to bring Jesus to people. I'm going to feed these poor lowly folks and my, my great wisdom at 20 years old and, and, and realize, you know, when I, when I started to hang out with folks and become friends with people, uh, they were teaching me things about love and about life and about God and about how to be human and how to be Christian. So uh, I started to realize that, that you know, saving people and going out, uh, being so one-sided and having this us and them kind of mentality that I somehow am better than or other than or whatever, then people who are homeless uh, just started to go away so, so big time. And so now 28 years later, 29 years, however long it's been, I, uh, I, that's still my story. I'm still the one that's being saved. I'm, I'm still the one that gets to meet Jesus in, in dark alleys. I, I live with multiple sclerosis, as you may know. And yes. uh, so uh, I thought I was going to bring healing to people, but you know, people were bringing healing to me, not necessarily physical healing, but certainly a, a healing of my mind and of my soul. 
I uh, volunteer. Our church in Ottawa opens its doors on Friday nights. It's called A Place to Go, and people uh, who may live marginalized lives uh, come, and it's sort of a social and a food time. And I realized very quickly that um, what I could bring actually felt like listening, that listening to people's stories and asking questions and uh, was really an important part of what I could do. And I'm wondering if you can um, comment on that, if that makes sense to you, but also give us some uh, ways of being uh, with people who may, we, we may feel nervous or afraid, or we're not used to being with people experiencing homelessness or marginalization. Yeah. How, how best to be? Yeah, it's best to be ourselves, really, and, and recognize, again, that, that we're all equals and we're all created in the image of God, and so therefore we all have things to learn from each other. So I I would say if you like watching baseball, then you're going to have something in common with people on the streets. If you like Days of Our Lives, you're going to have something in common. If you like playing cards or uh, if you like the Leafs, go Leafs. I, I, don't, get, I don't often get to say that. <laughs> uh, that then you sit and watch hockey with people, you know, and, and, and we all have these things in common, like even like we eat together. So at, at the shelter that I was running for a while, Gateway, we even called ourselves the Gateway because we wanted to provide a place where when people come through our doors, other, other doors would open to them, that we wouldn't simply be a warehouse for humanity. And so we did things like not put glass up between the staff and the residents so that when people come through our doors, they have that early and instant sort of message that we're in this thing together. We're not different than you. So, and then, and I said to my staff, you know, you don't have to pay for your meals, but I do want you to, if you do eat your food here, I want you to line up in the same food line with the same guys and eat the same amount of food, sit at the same table using the same cutlery. And again, sending that strong message that we're all in this thing together and, uh, you know, we got to eat, we got to use the bathroom. You know, that's the, that evens the playing field. All of us together have to do those things. Yeah, I, re- I really like that. So important. Um, tell us to Dion, because I think this is an ongoing question for a lot of uh, people. How, on the street, if someone asks you for money or you feel compelled to uh respond what is the best way is there consensus out there i've heard people say different things no there is no no consensus the only real consensus is that we treat people as equals and so we if if we choose not to give money or we don't have money to give at the very least we looked at, at a person in the eye and we and we treat that person like a human being we talk to them we smile and you could say no i don't have money or i can't give you money today or i will buy you a meal uh, some of my staff have strong opinions about that. I, I certainly don't mind handing some money to somebody if um, if I have it and if if I can spare it. Uh, but it's a little bit easier for me too because I, I actually know a lot of the guys on the street, so I, I actually have a sense of their stories. And but even then, you know, even if I, you know, some people say I'm not going to give away the money because it's going to be used for crack and it's going to be abused and so on and so forth. But you know, God, God. I think about I think about that theologically, and I think God. You know, God gives me so many gifts all the time that I misuse and abuse, and that God's God. God only cares about the act of giving, not the act of what I do with that gift. And so, for me, when I give a gift to someone on the street, it's 
it's more about the act of giving them, you know, whether or not that person uses it the way I think they should use it or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's where I've landed as well. I think what's happening with my heart right now, and um, that's an important part of this for sure. Um, you wrote a chapter in this book that's just call, come out called Beyond Shelters, Solutions to Homelessness in Canada from the Front Lines. Um, tell us a bit about the book and what you're hoping it will accomplish. Yeah, the book is written by people who have worked inside or running shelters all across the country. I think there's 11 chapters, 10 or 11 chapters. And so uh, the question that each of us were asked by the editor was, how do you envision shelters? What do you think they should look, could look like in 10 years? And so uh, my chapter, essentially, what the answer to that question for me is, if we play our cards right, if we do it right, we don't. We don't need to have shelters in 10 years. If we took very, the very simple message that Jesus gave us, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves uh, and to love God, those are the only two things that, you know, God, you know, Jesus said, you know, these are my two greatest commandments. Everything else on, on this rests all the law and the prophets. So if we actually figured out what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love God, we wouldn't need shelters. People wouldn't slip through the cracks of small towns and cities all across this country and all across the world and end up in shelters. So um, I, I drove that I drove that home in my uh, chapter. And I, and I also, in my chapter, I said, you know, there are three things that all people need in order to uh, have a life, in order to uh, maintain a good living. Those are a home, a job, and a friend. And that if everybody had those three things in life, they wouldn't be merely surviving, but they would be living. Tell me more about the home part, because I know there is this strategy, uh, housing first. Um, can you explain that to us and just why that matters so much? Yeah, back when I started this work, we used to think that we, we should deal with someone's issues first. And then, uh, like, if that's addiction or mental health or uh, whatever, and then, and then after we deal with those things, then we help a person find work, uh, find, sorry, find a home. Uh, but now we realize, like, if a person has their own place to live first, their own key, their own bedtimes, their own, their own food, all that stuff, then it's easier for that person to work on those other issues afterwards. So we do what we call follow-up support. So so people get into their own place to live and then staff go to them and sort of work on whatever whatever things are in their lives. It's just easier for, for people to deal with it once, once you have a sta stable living environment. So housing first is, is this kind of relatively new idea which should have occurred to me 30 years ago, which I just never thought of. And it's, it's, it's simply as soon as we meet someone, as soon the very, very first thing that we talk about is housing. And then once someone is housed, then we start dealing with the other stuff. Yeah, if I think about my own life, uh, if something went drastically wrong, and I didn't have a place to live, I can completely see that there are a lot of other things that could not be solved until yeah. I took care of that big priority issue. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's, it's almost like it should, should have been a no-brainer, but for whatever reason, some things that seem so simple will take so long to 
sort of strike home. And with some of your the friends you work with, Deanna, this must be, is this a long journey of friendship? Like, have you, have you seen amazing success stories, like whatever success means, I guess, but, or is it more just a long journey? Tell us about that. Yeah, again, it depends on the person. Uh, certainly at Gateway, the average length of stay was three months. Uh, but some people would come for just a few days until they get back on their feet. Never thought they'd ever see a shelter, kind of afraid to even be there. They lost their job, needed a place to go for a few days, and then they're gone. And, you know, we barely even get to know those guys. We don't get to know their names or anything. They, they just come and go quickly. And then others, you know, get stuck in the immigration refugee system, and all of a sudden they're a year before they can turn around and get paperwork and get back on their feet. So, again, it depends on the person. So... Uh, and you're right, success is measured very differently. Like somebody could come in to our shelter and tell us that their name is Trigger, which is basically a, a street name. And then we, we don't insist on people giving us their their names or even their date of birth or whatever. They can make something up and we don't care. We don't require ID or anything like that. And then so if Trigger three months later tells us his real name, then we view that as success. All of a sudden, we know that Trigger trusts us enough with his name to, to tell us tell us what, what that is. So that's one way. Other people certainly certainly get get housing and never come back. They get a job. Um, so again, it's different. It's just so different for everybody. But certainly, we need to also as a as staff start start to sort of rethink what success really means. Can you tell me about social enterprise? Because that's been part of your work, I think, through the Salvation Army. What does that mean and how can that help? Yeah, social purpose enterprise is a business that exists not for the purpose of just making money, but for the purpose of seeing lives changed. So uh, we at Gateway, uh, one of, I got into social enterprise because I actually think, God, this is, might be where you, know, you might think I'm kind of crazy. But I think God <laughs> speaks to me sometimes in my sleep. I think in my dreams. Mm-hmm. I'm big on dreams these days. And uh, anyway, I'm sleeping and I wake up in the middle of the, morning, the night and uh, I sort of think, you know what, we're spending $50,000 a year at just at one shelter, cleaning sheets and towels and pillowcases, <clears throat> excuse me, farming those out to a no-name sort of laundry company. And then uh, and I, I thought to myself, why don't we start our own laundry business? And then when I called around the other shelters, the other Salvation Army shelters the next morning, I found out that we were spending over $300,000 a year just just farming out sheet sells pillowcases. And we have all these people living in our shelters who are able-bodied and are actually wanting work and looking for work. So why don't we uh, do our own laundry facility and have the people who are looking for work Work there, so that's you know. Long story short, I uh, went out and raised a million dollars, and we built uh, a laundry facility, uh, which now I think it trains uh, eight people every three months, and uh, and we've guaranteed some sort of long term unionized work after people graduate. Wow, that is incredible. Are other uh, people taking that as a model and trying to replicate it? Yeah, actually, it's a, that's a very good question. It seems like right across the country, there's a, there's a there's four or five laundry facilities that I know of across the country that have come 
to see ours and, and have yes replicated that across in different places across Canada. Uh, there are also different kinds of social enterprises. So you might know Sanctuary. I think you do. Uh, yes. They they run a bike shop called uh, it's called Switchback Switchback Cyclery. So that bike shop uh, has is, is employing hard to employ men and women there to to work uh, fixing bikes and uh, helping people get on their way on on their bike commute. So we're doing all these things all across you know the country to try and say you know what we can start our own businesses like we can do a locksmithing business we can do oil changes we can do food we're serving uh you know all these people food we could do food there's a lot that we could do i haven't really had a chance to get to that but uh because it's it's an enormous amount of work i have to confess it's a it's a lot a lot a lot of work to get things going and lots of opposition to it uh with other uh like our laundry company that we were paying money to said we couldn't do it we would never be able to get a laundry company up, which is the last thing you want to say to me. You can't do it because <laughs> that's the most motivating thing anybody could ever say. So, we, yeah, we went for it and, we, and we're doing it. So it's pretty cool. Wow. That is a good news story. That is really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, Dion, I was going to ask you, and I wonder I, your your answer about uh, God speaking to you in dreams maybe. Maybe part. Maybe you've already answered this question, but I was going to ask you as we wind up. Um, you know how and where in your life you've been experiencing God the deepest lately. Yeah. Um, so again, it goes back to this this, this this terrible disease I've got. I've I've got this thing that I've been twenty one years, but last year, exactly a year ago, my health took a significant drop, and I ended up in hospital f- for four months and. I ended up actually having to leave work. I'm no longer actually working for the Salvation Army officially. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it as a volunteer a little bit. And I'm in a wheelchair now. So there's a lot of been, and I've been renovating my home so, to get it more accessible for me. So I've actually had to live uh, in, a, in an apartment separate from my home and my wife and my daughter for over a year now, uh, waiting for this house to get done. As we speak, we're putting in an elevator. Right now, as we speak, we're, there's an elevator being installed into my house so that I can get into the basement. So um, there's times at three o'clock in the morning when I wake up and uh, uh, I feel like it's kind of the dark night of the soul kind of thing. And I, I, I experience God. I feel like God is with me, that God, God is there. I mean... Uh, I'd rather be home, uh, but I certainly feel God's presence. And and when I get a chance to go hang out on a drop-in with my wheelchair, people now can see this guy that they thought had it all together uh, does not have it all together. I'm also vulnerable. I've also been dealt some bad cars. And so that also sort of breaks down some walls that used to exist between me and folks on the street because now everybody can very plainly see that uh, I got I got stuff to deal with too and and that actually brings me not only closer to the folks on the street but but closer to God as well I'm more dependent on God like I I feel like um, I'm learning I'm learning a lot about as an independent guy uh, I'm learning a lot about the need for and the vitality of dependence not just on others but on God as well. Oh, Dion, thank you. Thank you for being so honest and uh, 
yeah, we are, we are there with you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Where can people find you online and uh, find the book if they're interested? Yeah, good question. I, I, I do blog. I do a lot of blogging about uh, about my life, especially this past year, and that's at DionOxford.com. And uh, they can find me at DionOxford at gmail.com. And the book is on Amazon. I forget the exact web address, but it's uh, Beyond Shelters on Amazon. Quite easy to find. And uh, if you uh, want to buy it and you're close to Toronto, I'd be happy to sign, sign it if that yeah. is any, awesome. any sort of motivation. Yeah, um, that's good. Well, it's a good book. Dion, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit www.theefc.ca forward slash faith today.